Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read together from the verse number 9. Romans 3, reading together from the verse number 9. Again, our, our subject material for today and the days to come is really on the basis of God is. And the things we may say after that, there are various ends to that sentence. Uh, of course, it is a sentence in itself. God is. And that's truth in itself. And it is my desire to, to go through this material the next number of, of months. I'm going to use, it's a very famous Puritan work uh, by a man called Stephen Charnock, known as uh, the book's called The Existence and Attributes of God. I'm going to use that as an outline, really, to help me to, to guide my uh, study through this. And if you've got a copy of that, please feel free to read that. It'll benefit your soul. But we're not going to look at that in all the details. I'm not going to uh, read through that book with you. Just a, an outline that gives us, a, a, if you like, a roadmap uh, direction to go in this study. It's such a vast subject, and various people have taken it in various ways. And so you've got to kind of pick someone and say, well, we'll go in that direction, and it'll help our studies through uh, the next number of months. But let's read together from verse number 9 of Romans chapter 3. What then are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both the Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them, who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a question at the outset this morning, and that is, do you know any atheists? People in your family, perhaps. In your friendship circles, do you know anybody, and they are properly defined, they are atheists? Of course, that word atheist or atheism, you have it there. Atheism, the word at the beginning here, this word a is without, or no, it's a negative prefix in the, uh, in the Greek language, followed by the concept of theism or theo. And so it's no God or without God. So do you know any atheists? Now, you can answer that privately, but let me tell you, you all do. You all know people who are atheists. So well, I think most people I know believe there is a God. Well, that's where I want to broaden your horizons and your concept of atheism today. Because what you see here in Romans chapter 3 is a proof text for the fact that each and every unbeliever is, to some degree, an atheist. Atheism is unbelief. 
Unbelief is atheism. And so those who are not trusting in Christ Jesus are to some extent atheists. So that's a very broad statement. How can you prove that? Well, I can prove it because here in Romans chapter 3, there is the the, the giving of, of several parts of the Old Testament Scriptures to prove what he says in verse number 9, to prove that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. He's seeking to make the case that no matter your religious background, there is universal human corruption and depravity. And so he gives these various proof texts. They are all gone out of the way. He's again talking about the the universal impact of sin, that not just Gentiles are born in sin and shaped in iniquity, but all mankind is born in sin. But significantly in verse number 12, they said, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, if you turn back now, And to the Psalm 14, you will see those words there. Back to Psalm 14. Again, remember my desire here is to prove, I trust very quickly, that there is atheism in the very core of unbelief. There you have verse number 3. Here's the quotation that Paul has taken in Romans chapter 3. They're all gone aside They are together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. If you go back to verse 1, you will see this famous text regarding atheism. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and did seek God. They're all gone aside. Again, the whole context here is of the universality of man's depravity. But it's connected in verse 1 with the fact the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Now, I've asked this question before. What is the fool in poetic literature in the Old Testament? Who's the fool? You can answer this one. Who's the fool? Anybody? Yeah, Dan. Okay, so the one who rejects wisdom in God. You think of Proverbs. And here in the psalmist, the fool is the unbeliever. It's not referring to intellectual ability. But the fool and the wise are contrasted in that absolute sense. The fools are those who are unsaved, and the wise are those who have, by God's grace, come to know the true God. Foolish or wise. And so there's that absolute contrast. But the fool has said, there is no God. And then he goes on to explain and expound that. But Paul takes that and uses that to prove the universality of human depravity. Therefore, the assertion is that each and every person who does not properly have faith in the true God is to some degree an atheist. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a believing true theist. Again, that's going to need some definition. I accept that. There are clearly many people in this world who don't trust in Christ as we understand Christ to be, and yet they they still profess faith in a God. They profess to be theistic. They believe that there is a God even who made this world. So what are we saying here? Well, turn now to Hebrews chapter 11. Romans 3 is proof text 1 for the, again, the universality of atheism. 
But Romans chapter, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11 is proof text number 2. Hebrews 11, of course, the great chapter of faith, reminds us, faith is, verse 1, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is this idea of faith having conviction of the unseen. It's got certain grounds and substance. But look at verse number 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So there you see that in order to come to God, and again, the, the language you're bringing in light of Enoch is in this relationship with God, walking with God. If you're going to come to God, that requires faith. But what is that faith? Well, it's faith that God is. But that's not all. It is faith that God is and that he is who he reveals himself to be in the Word. So true theism is not just an assertion that there is a God. True theism is an assertion that there is one God, and that is the God of the Bible as he reveals himself in his fullness. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so then you get to the point, therefore, there must be different forms of atheism. Not all atheists are alike. There are different types of atheists, but bottom line, uh, they all come to the same, uh, the same end point. Look at this way. The one you'll be aware of is this. It's what we might term absolute, absolute atheism. And that's the person who asserts that there is no God. They have the temerity, the boldness of their consciousness to say, there is no such thing as God. I do not believe in God. You might call that the classical atheist. Those are the ones you're very aware of, who deny the very existence of God. But there's also, and this is a point that Sharnock makes, there's also what we might term providential atheists. Now, what they are, and again, in Sharnock's language, they are what you might have previously understood as being the deists. So they have an understanding that there is a God and that God made the world, but that God exists outside of the world, not intervening in the world. Dear folks, that is another form of atheism. That's not a middle road. That is atheism in a different guise. Because it's not how God reveals himself in the Bible. And so you get this point where you see, well, atheism is broader than perhaps we may understand it. It's got a, it's got a broader scope, providential atheism. And the third one, again, that, that Charnock gives us is what he terms natural, natural atheism. Again, what the natural atheist is, is someone who denies aspects of God's nature. So they deny the attributes of God. So they, they have a God of their imagination. They may even accept some parts of God's attributes. And so in that regard, you can put in the liberal Christian who will say, well, God is this, but not this, even though the not this is against a very clear revelation in God's word. And so ultimately, they've, they've, they've a God of their imagination, which means they do not believe in the true God, hence they're atheists. 
Did you get the logic there? Did you get the understanding there? That to be a true theist, you must not simply assert that there's a God, but you're shut in to believe how God has revealed himself in his word. And so the Islamist is not a theist. They're not. They believe in a single God. They're monotheistic. But yet their God is not the God of the Bible. And so having made a God of their imagination, they then have unbelief in the God of the Scriptures. And because there is only one true God, if you don't believe the God of the Scriptures, what are you? You're an atheist. Do you see the logic here? I'm not trying to insert some cleverness here. I want you to understand that each and every unbeliever is in essence atheistic. We need to pray, don't we? We need to pray that they would come to see the one true and living God. You will say, well, can, can you not be a believer in the God of the Bible as revealed and yet not be a Christian? Can you not assent to all of these things? Take the boxes. God is this, yes, this, 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 this. Some of our children can do that. They may not know the Lord, but they will say, well, I believe all of that. In what sense are they atheistic? Well, are they? What do you think? Yeah, take George in there. Okay, so I think you're the very amen to that. So you get this idea that people can have truth in their minds and yet suppress that in unrighteousness, and because of that they deny the truth. Okay, so you, there's an inconsistency between their intellectual or conscience awareness in Romans. We'll come to that very shortly. There's a contrast. There's a contradiction between their conscious awareness and then how they deny that in their in their practice. But I'm even going beyond. You've got somebody raised in a, again in a, in a Christian home, and they've they've understood the catechism. They've they've ticked all the boxes regarding who God is, but they're, they're not believing in the Lord. They're not they're not trusting. They've an intellectual assent. So are they atheistic in that sense? Yeah, so yeah, I'll take John. I'll come back to you, Dan. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, they are. Because yeah, so they're, they're, they're lost in, in that sense, and that's absolutely the case, you know? So, but Dan, I'll take your point, and then we'll.
Hmm. Okay, so yeah, amen. We're going to come back through some of those things, Dan, and that's, there are two different thought processes here, and I want to try to keep us clear in the two distinctions, okay? I agree with Dan, there is no such thing as an atheist. And yet at the same point this morning, I just began by saying that everybody who's not a believer is an atheist. Is that a contradiction? Well, I'm deliberately trying to make you think. And I suppose what I'm going to get to is I'm going to assert to you that every unbeliever is a professed atheist. And that's an important distinction. Because the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. But as George has said, they suppress, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They deny the truth that they know. So both of these things are true. It just depends on the angle you're coming at. But so those who don't know the Lord, I'm suggesting to you, well, they are, they are ultimately, they're, they are professing atheism, though they may deny that. And so you think of those can raised in a church context, raised uh, through the Word of God, though they may ascribe intellectually to agree uh, with the catechisms and the confessions, they are, again, according to Romans 3, they are also atheists, both Jews and Gentiles, no matter their intellectual awareness. There's, there's none that doeth good. But the sense in which they are atheistic is because God reveals himself not abstractly. Now, what I mean by that? Well, God is not just a collection of attributes so far removed from creation that we can look out towards God and say, this is God, without any personal application of who He is. God reveals Himself in such a way that He is God for His people. And therefore, if we are not entering into God as our refuge, we are then, in that sense, denying His attribute as a refuge. He's a a safe place. He is our shelter, our shield, our stronghold. Now, you can say, yes, he is that, but unless you enter that by faith, you haven't properly understood what it is to be a theist. So, again, we're dealing with these absolute issues, which is why it's very, very important then to begin by defending the existence of God and then moving on to the attributes of God and realizing those attributes are personal to God and then must be applied to your hearts. I don't want us in 12 months' time to come to the end of this class and say to ourselves, well, I agree with all of those things regarding who God is. But He's not God for you. And He's not your God. He's he's the one true God, but He's not your God. You know, true theism involves Him being God and then Him being your God as you come to trust in Him. So that's the order. Again, I'll come back to that time and time again. So there is... Again, universal atheism, and yet, as we're going to see now, it is only professed atheism. So let's think then about this and begin this today. We're going to, this will take some more time. If we think about this in terms of how then do we begin to think about, if you like, evidences? Evidences uh, for the truth that God is, the existence of God. Again, historically, in in classical theology, in in the doctrine of God proper, uh, there's been various evidences given for the existence of God, and uh, I'm not going into that detail. Uh, There are various types of arguments given for the existence of God. I'm going to use them, I'm going to borrow them, but I want to be very, very careful here. Sometimes Christians, when they come to seek to prove the existence of God, 
They seek to prove the existence of God in the way they prove anything else. And God is not like anything else. You've got to keep that in mind. So, you've got a, an accusation of a crime taking place. How do you prove the crime took place? It's a question, yeah. Jack, you should know this one, brother. <laughs> evidence, okay? So that evidence is, if you like, outside the crime itself. Witnesses to the crime. Perhaps evidence that comes into the crime from outside. It's external to the event. And the evidence, it takes on a position of authority over and above the charge itself. So you've got a, a convict in the, in the courtroom. They are guilty of the crime. But the evidence against their crime is outside of themselves and has authority over their denials. If you like, the evidence has a higher weight than their testimony. They say, not guilty, but the evidence is over them, outside them, and it comes upon them and says, no, you're guilty. And sometimes Christians take that sort of approach regarding the existence of God. They look for things outside of God to prove God. But there is no higher authority outside of God to prove God. There is no more reliable witness outside of God to prove God. And so our arguments for the existence of God must be within God himself or things that God has put in place to prove his existence. You know, in one way, you put it this way, God has no need to prove his existence. There's no argument. God is. But yet he has, in his kindness, he's put things in place that we are left without excuse. And we can't deny his existence. But to keep things, if you like, safe and biblical, I think we go in, in three areas. Evidences that are from creation. Evidences from conscience. And evidence pertaining to Christ. And so I think if you're going to argue for God's existence, those are the three categories I encourage you to use. Now, you may use different ones for different people. Um, we'll, we'll take some time over the next number of weeks to go through these uh, little by little and try to examine how these are used to prove that God is. But these things, they come from God. They are by God, for God. And all in different areas prove that there is a God. And not only that, when you come to Christ, you get the proof of the nature of who God is. Creation and conscience, they prove to mankind that there is a God. Christ gives a proof of the God, His nature and His attributes. So let's begin with these. And just look at, we'll look at three verses that prove these three aspects, uh, and then we'll come and we might get into the beginning of creationism itself. So Romans chapter 1 has been referenced already uh, today. Romans chapter 1, and that is the fact that creation is given to us by God as a way and a means of seeking to prove His existence. Again, Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Again, here we've had this reference already, that word to hold 
is a wrestling term. It is to, to, to hold down something that they know. Like truth is under their power. How is it under their power? By their unrighteousness. And then verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And you read on down that, and you'll see several times when the unbeliever is said to change the glory of God or the truth of God for a lie. They deny these things that they know. But again, for our purpose right now, the invisible things are made known from creation itself, even God's power and Godhead. So you get a sense that there's a powerful God, that there is a God, and that God is powerful as you observe the created universe. Then Romans chapter 2, again you have the assertion here of conscience, that those who uh, perhaps do not have the law of God, they do by nature the things contained in the law. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 2, for when the Gentiles which have not the law, they don't have the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And so you examine the world. Again, you see consistent patterns of morality. And you see the same things in various cultures. You see religion being practiced in many, many cultures. And you get this idea of the the need for religion and the fact that certain things are looked upon as being wrong in every culture. And you get this idea, oh, there is a God. There's a consistency between the Bible's revelation and human consciousness. And then, of course, Christ himself. Back in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And this one we will not go into in detail uh, at this point in our studies, because really what we'll do when we begin to look at the attributes of God, uh, we will see those attributes at times revealing Christ Jesus. Okay, so the rest, of our, or the rest of the study really in many ways will be examining uh, Christ as the revelation of God. And so uh, John chapter 1 verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so the sending of Christ into the world is, again, part of God's kindness to humanity that we are clearly seeing that there is indeed a God. And in Christ's coming, we see the nature of God, the character of our God. And so those are the three categories, if you like, that I think are safe categories as we seek to build up a case for how God reveals himself in his word as being the God that is. Okay, let's then think, Moving quickly, let's think then about God in terms of, of, in terms of creation. And again, there are three, three areas in which I believe that creation gives us evidence regarding the existence of God, and we'll, we'll deal with one of these now. It is in terms of its origin. There's also the organic unity of creation. And thirdly, there is its ongoing existence. Ongoing existence, okay? So those are three areas in which the Bible and our own understanding will help us to see something regarding the being of God that God is. Its origin. 
Right, please understand, this is not an attempt to prove the God of the Bible. It is simply a logical inference to prove that there is a God. And it goes very simply. Every effect must have a prior motion. has to. That there is something now, there must be something preceding what is now. And when you think of that carefully, we might say, well, every building has its architect and builder. There is something, therefore there is something that caused that visible effect. Everything came from somewhere. But ultimately, we are left with only two possibilities. Two possibilities. There are only two things that that can be true for this. Either matter is eternal, or God is. One of those two assertions must be true. There is matter. Where did it come from? I get there's tremendous mystery in this. There's so much is unknown. But to believe that we are here without there being a God is a larger step of faith than believing we are here because there is a God. Now, that's easy for me. I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm not involved in in a debate in in some academic institution uh, where there are high-level scientists who are seeking to prove uh, atomic theory and all the things that goes into the potential beginning of the universe. I, I grant that, accept that. But I think it's significantly more rational to believe that intelligent personality springs from intelligent personality than to believe that intelligent personality comes from inanimate matter. You're all thinking right now. You're hearing what I'm saying. You're scratching your head going, I don't, I don't understand all this. This is, this, is, this is difficult concepts, and some of it is. But the fact there is matter now, then there must either be a God, or else matter itself must to some degree be eternal. And that's to my mind, makes no sense. One person said this, Since it is inconceivable that intelligent personality should spring from inanimate matter, the only rational position is to say that matter sprang from an intelligent person, namely God, who made all things out of nothing. There has to be one first cause. There has to be. Logically, there has to be a first cause for everything. And the only rational first cause is an eternal, self-existent, intelligent being, namely God. It's one of the basic arguments, the existence of God. You are. You're here, therefore there must be a God. Again, there are all manner of arguments against that, but they are suppositions, they are leaps of faith, they're based on the presupposition that there is no God, and therefore they bring their case based upon that presupposition. Any comments on that or questions? From, and again, some of you have thought of these things in, in deep levels in the past. Any comments or questions on that? Yeah, George. Well, 
Yeah, no, it's and Hebrews is very important. By faith, we understand the world. And turn, turn there. We'll stop here for now. But turn very quick. Hebrews eleven. You'll see that text referred to there, because it, it does. It needs to be understood. Verse number three of Hebrews eleven. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Again, that's a very important proof text for Paul's overarching argument regarding the nature of faith. That faith is in that which is not seen. And the point he's making here is, you weren't there at the beginning. You weren't there. None of us were. And so you're going to have to exercise faith outside of yourself. It does not mean, this, this is where the unbeliever comes. You only believe in God because it's blind faith. That's not the point. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying, you weren't there in the beginning. You didn't see it. So therefore, you're going to have to believe how we're interpreting this. But the evidence is very, very clear that there's a God. So faith is not without evidence, but it is in evidence. It's evidence of something which you personally did not see. And that goes on. So Abraham, you're going to trust in a God and a land. You haven't seen these things, but you go out looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. That's what faith is. And so faith, again, in a creationist sense, is faith in that which you did personally not, not see and went partly to. Okay, so we'll come, we'll come back to, uh, to these things uh, again, but these are very important uh, principles, again, to, uh, to build upon in, in, the coming, in the coming weeks. So may God help us. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's uh, blessing again upon us uh, today. Let's all seek God's face. Eternal God and Father, we humbly again come into thy presence in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for what we have in the Word of God that enables us to properly interpret this world. We realize, O Lord, that again, mankind, as they engage in scientific endeavor, can look at this world and make the wrong conclusions and make the wrong interpretations. And so we thank you that your Word governs and directs our minds that as we analyze this world and we observe its patterns and laws, help us, O Lord, to examine those through the prism of your word that we would see a glorious God, your eternal power and Godhead. Encourage our faith in these studies. We want, O Lord, to know that thou art, that you are the true and living God, and indeed that you are the rewarder of those that diligently seek thee. Deliver, O Lord, those who are near and dear to us. Deliver them from their professed atheism, that they would come to acknowledge not only that God is, but that He is their God. He is the God and Father of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless and encourage our hearts today. Help us as we come to worship Your name. May we do so with gladness today as we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.